Well, thank you for joining us today for this seminar. I'm so glad that you're with us. I'm Chad DeYoung. I'm the senior pastor at Westchester Bible Church in Westchester, Illinois. I'm so grateful that you have taken your time to participate in these uh, virtual conference sessions. It's so different than what we are used to, but many of you know and have done yourself so many hours in front of a camera. And so these are challenging days to live out, but these are great days as well where we are able, even though COVID-19 prevents us from meeting in person, we are able to meet in such a format as this. So thank you. Thank you for joining us and participating in these uh, sessions together, both these individual sessions as well as in the general sessions that we share. I pray that these would be an encouragement for you. Uh, today we are going to be dealing with this issue of practical apologetics. How does apologetics work? That's really the question we're going to get into. We're not talking about systems. We're talking more about the method behind, the why behind apologetics. How do we live out apologetics on a practical daily basis? That's where we're going to spend our time over the next few moments together. As we do so, let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time together around this very important topic as we also contemplate our theme, which is taking every thought captive. Let's ask the Lord's blessing now. Father, we are grateful that we can bow our heads before an all-knowing, almighty God who has known about COVID-19 all along. You are not taken by surprise. And as we are challenged by what is going on in our world today, we recognize that we have great opportunities to be those who proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. May we do so with a fervency and a love that reveals your compassion and your mercy for others. May we also do so as those who are diligent in providing and seeking for the provision of the answers that a lost and dying world needs. But may we do so as those who practically live out what this looks like in our lives so that we are a walking example of what you have done. Lord, thank you that we have the privilege in the midst of all of the challenges that we face today, in addition to all of the challenges we had before COVID-19. We have a whole new set, and we're grateful for those challenges because it teaches us to rely more and more on you but it also gives us an opportunity to gather around this topic in a very unique and special way. I pray that you would use this session in our hearts and lives to glorify you and be with me. Give me the words to say that you want me to say. That would be those that were used to edify and to build up and to equip the church to be more faithful in apologetics, be more faithful in defending the faith and doing so with an authenticity that reflects the truthfulness of our Savior the love of our Savior, the holiness and the righteousness of our Savior, that your name would be glorified and that many would be challenged to come to know you as Savior because of the hour or so that we're spending here together today. May you be exalted now. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen. We do come together here at a very interesting time. At the time of this filming, COVID-19, is on the decline. Uh, we're seeing it's kind of bottoming out. We're hoping that it's bottoming out. At least here in the state of Illinois, we've had some of the lowest numbers that we have had since April and some even since March. These are exciting things for us, but in the midst of this, we are suffering somewhat of a crisis fatigue. That is that we have gone from one crisis to the other so much that our adrenal glands have pumped out all 
of the adrenaline and now we are just kind of struggling through. We see this as this crisis continues concerning the injustices that were done to George Floyd in Minneapolis. The protests that came from those injustices would devolve into riots and then into looting. I know here in our own area, just within our own streets, within our own community here were protests. Not very far away, there was looting and all of the major stores that were able to be open were all boarded up once again. Perhaps that was true in your area as well. Then just last night, a Wendy's in Atlanta was burned. Again, because of atrocities that were committed, the story isn't known yet. And so we just see one crisis after the other. How do we live out apologetics? We may be tempted to go to social media and address it there. And I would encourage us to unplug from social media and make this a little bit more personal, especially as we get into uh, the understanding of what it looks like to have practical apologetics lived out. When I began to think about what we would be discussing in this seminar, I reflected on an individual that had a tremendous impact in my own heart and life. That man just went home to be with the Lord. His name was Ravi Zacharias. And I remember as a young pastor that I was struggling with a, a teacher in our public school who was very opposed to Christianity and was using kids as a pawn. Those kids who were part of our youth group was using them as a pawn to uh, debate his points of reference. Uh, as one day I was meeting with a group of teenagers and we were working through some answers in Genesis curriculum at the time, I remember just uh, the intensity that one of these young people had as they argued and debated the pros and cons to uh, what the professor had said, their teacher had said. These are sad times for me, and I remember looking for answers. And I found first Jesus Among Other Gods by Ravi Zacharias, and I so appreciated the heart that went into that. Soon I would watch other videos and, and hear him speak, and I just began to understand something was different about Ravi Zacharias than many apologists, at least many of us who try to do apologetics. Ravi Zacharias had a heart that was very compassionate to those who were searching for answers. He was gentle and respectful all the time. And I so appreciated that wonderful truth. And we see that actually in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, that call to do just exactly that. We're going to study that in just a few minutes together. In the meantime, I also recognize that Ravi Zacharias provided a great example for us in other ways as well, including some of the works that he has contributed to Christianity. He says this in one of those works, and this is from his book Beyond Opinion, which he was the contributing editor to. He says, I have little doubt that the single greatest obstacle to the impact of the gospel has not been the inability to provide answers, but the failure on our part to live it out. Let me say that again. Uh, Ravi Zacharias writes this, I have very little doubt that the single greatest obstacle to the impact of the gospel has not been the inability to provide answers, but the failure on our part to live it out. That is our theme that we are going to be addressing in practical apologetics, the ability to live it out and the ability to teach others to live it out as well. 
A faithful defense of the faith requires more than answers. It requires an obvious obedience to the word of God. So let us not just stop at providing answers. Let us dig deeply and live passionately for the things of the Lord, that Christ's likeness would be displayed. I remember a plane ride with a well-known pastor, and he had boarded the plane before me. He was sitting a couple rows before me. Uh, As people were coming onto the plane, he uh, was getting more and more grouchy. He was sitting on an aisle seat, and everyone was kind of hitting him with their bags as they went by. And I remember just the grumbling approach that he had. Now, I can't say that I would be any different, but I remember the grumbling approach that he took. And as he yelled at one of the people to get their bag out of his face, it just reminded me of how serious this issue is, that no matter where we're at in the Christian faith, I have no doubt of the sincerity of his faith. The evidence of his ministry is very bold. But what it does begin to tell me is how quickly we can remove ourselves to having a system that is less than practical, less than obedient. So we always, no matter who we are, must be on guard for the very issues that we're discussing today. As we begin to discuss, we need to understand some obstacles that we face today that perhaps have never been faced in apologetics. We're not going to be discussing systems. You may be a classical apologist. You may be a presuppositionalist or an evidentialist or any other ist that you want to define in apologetics. You may have all of those, and I would encourage you to use them as necessary in the apologetic method. But we're not going to be talking that today. We're not talking about systems. We're talking about the foundation to those that helps us to live out godliness as we pursue that apologetic approach. In order to do that, we see some obstacles. The first obstacles is the voice in the marketplace has changed. The voice in the marketplace has changed. It used to be that answers were hard to come by, uh, rather difficult, and scholars or students of the Word of God were the ones who had the answers, and it was very difficult for everyone else to get these answers. However, today, look how easy it is for anyone to find answers. All we have to say is, hey, Surrey, and the answers are provided for us. It is that simple today, and everyone who has a phone or a tablet in an instant can have the answers to their questions. Those answers are probably not right, we understand, but that is one of the obstacles that we face today. So instead of providing the answers, the question has become more about how much respect you show for the questioner rather than the answers themselves. The answers are still very important, and we cannot diminish those. In fact, uh, we praise the Lord for great ministries like the one that is, has been blessing us so much this week, Answers in Genesis, who has provided a tremendous amount of resources that we should be tapping into. We should be utilizing these ministries and, and understanding the value of them as they provide answers for us, helping us to get past some of the surface level questions we would have had before and get right to the heart of it. But it is not so much about the platform anymore. It's about interacting so diligently with people that when racial tensions arise, that they come to you because they trust the way that you live. I was just sitting in a counseling environment just a couple days ago, and I asked the counselee, I said, why did you come to me? They're doing some premarital counseling. They're getting ready for uh, marriage, and we're excited for them. I said, why, why did you come to me? And the answer that they gave is because we respect 
your answers. Now, that is not said to flatter in any way my own position, but rather to point to the truth of what is being said. We recognize that people will care very little about your answers, but very much about the way you treat them and the respect that you show to them. And that is what Peter says as well. What Answers in Genesis and many of these other organizations can't provide for you as they provide these tremendous resources is that listening ear, an ear that is willing to hear the arguments that you present. We will not be given a listening ear unless we have a listening ear. And it's interesting that we find this in 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter says this, and this is really the ideas that we draw around ourselves today. Peter says this in verse 15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you, for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Answers without arrogance becomes very important for us as we understand what Peter is saying. Our answers should reflect a genuine compassion, or rather a gentle compassion, for those who are asking. Answers to their questions, though, we're going to discover are not enough. How you present those answers as evidence of the work of God in you, is absolutely essential. Apologetics and evangelism are really two sides of the same coin. They are different. They have their distinctions, and they are indeed separate in some ways. But they are two sides of the same coin. You need them both. They, in one, they provide answers to questions, but the question becomes, what is your attitude? Are we anxiously waiting in an evangelistic setting to use apologetics in such a way that we get our talking points out there, uh, that we're just waiting for the trigger to launch the next series of attacks. If we do that, we're anxiously waiting to use our talking points because we're full of knowledge, but empty of empathy. We're not relatable. In fact, we may not even be distinguishable from the rest of the world. So we're not relatable and we're not distinguishable. We're not relatable in the sense that they say, you don't understand what I'm going through. And we're not distinguishable because our lights are no different. We're the same. They've watched us for 30 minutes as we have interacted with others on the street. And they've seen us. Or they think that they have seen us. So evangelism goes hand in hand with apologetics. The two faces of the same coin. But one is really after the heart issue. And they both, the effectiveness of evangelism will ultimately boil down to the effectiveness of your authentic Christian living. I have a Muslim friend who always wants to debate. And there's been times where I've been very concerned because he appears to become radicalizing. I've seen him many times. He will often stop me on the Uh, street as I'm mowing my lawn and he will come by and say, hey, Pastor Chad, I've got a question for you. And he'll shoot a one-line question out to me. He is wanting debate. He's wanting discussion, but he's not wanting the truth. And I've told him many times, I won't use his name now, but I've told him many times that all you're after is a debate. You don't want to know the truth, but when you want to know the truth, come back and talk to me about it. He is very interested 
He's refusing to listen to the answer, but he's very interested in developing other talking points. You can see his mind churning. As soon as I give him an answer to the question, you can see as soon as I begin to talk, he starts to think about the next talking point, the next argument, his next response. It immediately removes all credibility to his arguments. No one wants to have that happen. And, and as one who is actively reaching the lost for the sake of Christ, I don't want them to feel the same way I feel when he has approached me. He doesn't have the answers to the questions people are really asking. He's just got his talking points. Sometimes our systems that we've learned in seminary and Bible college is all that we have. Systems are vitally important and there is nothing wrong with the systems. In fact, we must have them, but we must construct upon them as well. We must be those who will respond, not with a systematic answer, but a respect and a gentleness that we'll see in 1 Peter chapter 3. On the other side, we have some college students in our ministry here in Westchester who are surrounded by atheistic friends and they're often in discussions on racial issues, homosexuality, transgender issues. They want to show Christ-like love to those who are broken, but they fear that their friends will not believe that Christianity has answers because they have never seen it lived out in other Christians. Pastor, let us teach our people to live practical apologetics. Give them the means to find the answers to the questions, but give them the urgency to live it out faithfully so that their friends and neighbors will see Christ in them. How vitally important it is that we have the answers, but how much more important is it that we would live Christ-likeness out in a lost and dying world? When they see a difference in us, we are called repeatedly to be ambassadors, Paul calls us, Salt and light. That means that while we have answers, certainly, it is because of the evidence of the way that we live that those answers become effective. That is practical apologetics. That is taking every thought captive, using every moment as an opportunity for us to present Christ. Are you thinking that as you're driving down the road? How many times... Have you pulled up behind somebody and thought, oh man, if they would just get off their phone, they just won't drive. You're going to honk the horn or you want to honk the horn. And then you pull around and you realize that somebody that you know is right beside you watching the whole thing. Maybe not even paying too much attention, but they've been watching the whole thing. There should be a twinge of guilt in those moments where we have lapsed in taking every thought captive. Peter tells us this as we go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Listen to it again. The scripture there says this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. There's reason for hope. What is the reasons for hope in you? Paul, or rather Peter, begins with set-apart hearts. In order to give a defense for the hope that is within you, you must be concerned about having more than answers. You must have hearts that have set apart Christ as Lord. 
That is essential for us. This is not a salvific issue. This is an after faith. You're making a defense for the faith. You are setting apart Christ as holy. That is that you are taking every thought captive. You're not willing for there to even be a moment lapse. You've set apart Christ as holy. Peter understands this better than most. He was the ready defender of Christ when Jesus would tell him to get behind him, calling him Satan. He was the one who would later cut off the ear of Malchus. Because Peter was the ready defender, thinking that he had taken every thought captive and yet missing the point entirely twice. More than that, but specifically twice. Peter would come to know that his understanding was not the authority. His understanding was not the authority. How essential it is for us in the apologetic approach, in order for apologetics to be practical, how essential it is for us to understand that our ability to reason is not the authority. We are finite, broken. Let us be those who allow the word of God to be that which permeates our thinking, to take every thought captive. In order to continue with what Peter is saying then, we, in our hearts that honor Christ as Lord, these will be hearts that are driven to view culture in a very specific way. There are three ways that we view culture in an apologetic approach. Uh, that we understand it, and we're seeing it actually living out, lived out on our streets today, at least in the city of Seattle, and other cities have had the same threats. There are three cultures that are being played out, and we see one is the way that our country used to be, a theonomous view. Uh, we hold these to be self-evident. That is the idea of uh, recognizing that God has a law and we're obeying the law. That was the theme behind it. In a theonomous culture, theonomous, theo meaning God, onomous meaning law, God, law. God's law is so embedded in our hearts that it impacts everything in life and culture. We have cultures that are like this today. Uh, we see it lived out in Hindu cultures. We see it lived out in some Buddhist cultures. We see it lived out even in Judaism and even in some Christian cultures around the world. That is one culture. The second culture is a heteronymous culture where a few make the decisions for the many. This is Marxism and other cultures as well, where a few at the top begin to make the decisions for everyone below them. How far can you go? Where do you eat? How many miles can you travel? Where is the distance that you are able to travel for business? What can you say? What can you not say? We see countries like China uh, who are doing this today. We also see Islamic countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia who are following that same example where they are heteronymous cultures. It's not about what God says. It's about what the ayatollahs say, the imams say, as they control the masses. How far can you walk today? Who can you speak with? Who can you not speak with? That is a heteronymous culture. Third, we find an autonomous culture, an autonomous culture. And how interesting uh, that we would be in this day, at least at this moment of recording, because at this very moment in Seattle, 
There is a six-block segment of the city that has been set apart called an autonomous zone, an autonomous culture. We live in the world that is filled with the majority of people who believe that we are autonomous people, that we have an autonomous culture. What does that look like? Let's define it so that we understand how to live this out, practically speaking, in an apologetic method. Practically speaking, autonomy means self-rule, self-law. That means I get to determine the law for myself. Here's the problem. If I determine the law for myself, then either I have to allow you to have autonomy and agree that your law is the law for you and my law is the law for me, or I have to devolve into a heteronymous culture. That is, that I get to dictate what you believe. We see how this is lived out in our culture today. If you have an opposing view, if you have a biblical view of marriage, or you have a biblical view of gender, or you have a biblical view of name the ism or the ality, the personality that it is, if you have that kind of view, then you can't enforce that on me. At least that's what the world says. But I, or the, the world, can enforce or demand that you have my view. That's not autonomy. That's heteronomy. That's a heteronymous culture. And so as we see this lived out, it is interesting in the city of Seattle that the gates to this autonomous society have been guarded by those with guns. It's been also very interesting that there is a hierarchy who is committing terrible atrocities, evidently, on the inside. It's also fascinating that that hierarchy is telling people what they can do and what they cannot do. It is not an autonomous society. It is a heteronymous society. We must understand culture in order to understand how to be practical in apologetics. So if somebody says, you have no right to tell me that I cannot be, name the ality, the personality, such as homosexuality, you have no right to tell me that I cannot be that, but I have every right to tell you that you must agree with me. We recognize where they're coming from and how we can address this then. It helps us to understand that their hearts are not set apart, but our hearts must be. We cannot afford to be those who live self-autonomous. We cannot be those who are autonomous in our own law. We see how Paul speaks of this and he addresses this issue in 2 Corinthians. Let me turn there briefly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, which is where we get our theme for this week. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, and I'm going to back up just a little bit to verse 3. The scripture says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but, are, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Paul is giving us a very clear picture of practical apologetics, but he's very clear about where the battle lines are drawn, and that is important for us as we set apart hearts wholly unto God. 
we destroy every argument and lofty opinion against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We take, we take every thought captive as we honor Christ, the Lord is holy in our hearts. The defense of the faith is not subjective to the opinions of self-law. And we cannot surrender that ground when we are addressing those who are needing this apologetic approach. But we also can't do it in our own lives. How many times have we bought into the same truth? In fact, Greg Bonson writes this. He says, we live in a culture which has for so long been saturated by the claims of intellectual autonomy and the demand for neutrality in scholarship that is, that is an ungodly perspective that has been ingrained in us. You see, even as believers, we have been ingrained in this autonomy. We must remove the autonomy and set our hearts as holy unto the Lord, or that the Lord is holy, set Christ as holy in our hearts. That is, that we are not sold to autonomy, and we don't permit it in others. Peter slipped into it. Let us not be like Peter then. Let us be like Peter in 1 Peter. Let us not be the Peter who was in the garden with Malchus. Let us be like Peter was in 1 Peter. The words of Greg Bonson were spoken more than 15 years ago. But that perspective is now manifesting itself all the more and even more in the areas of social justice and gender inclusion, etc., etc., etc. What do we have to do? Going back to 1 Peter chapter 3, we are again reminded there that there is response that we are to have as believers. Again, the scripture there says, as we remind ourselves of it, he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. That's what we've been talking about. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. We have to be those who are ready to give an answer for the hope that lives within you. That means that they have to see that there's hope that lives within you. Living out that hope. Peter has called us to make a defense for the hope that is within us. How did that question come up? How will the questioner know who has hope and who doesn't? Many times I think we live indistinguishable from the world. Let us be distinguishable in the practical sense. Setting Christ is holy in our hearts so that we can live out boldly a faith that is clearly different on a practical sense. So that when issues of gender inclusion or issues of homosexuality or issues of whatever racial tension is going on at the moment come up, that we will be those who have so lived a Christ-like life that the unbelieving world around us will say they have something different about them I think I need to go talk to them if we are to obey the first part of the verse as well as to apply it to our theme of 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5 to take every thought captive we will be consistent in living in light of the hope that we have in Christ that is 
that we will always be mindful of eternity. We will never allow there to be a lapse in our judgment. We will never allow there to be a lapse in allowing our defenses to fall down and us to engage in sinfulness. Now, understand that even Paul says, I do what I do not want to do, but I do it anyway. We understand that we will continue to have this battle, but that does not give us the excuse to just lazily allow it to happen. Let us be those who live in light of the hope that we have. Let us live as those who know that one day we will spend eternity with our Savior. Let us live as those who recognize that one day our works will be judged as to if they are wood, hay, or stubble, or gold and precious stones. This is the hope of eternity. And it is not subject or apt to fail. It should dramatically change the way that we live all the time. Consistently changing the way that we live all the time. So Peter gets us into this next two aspects. And we're going to deal with them and understand what they look like. And it's really one that has drawn us to Ravi Zacharias to begin with. As I mentioned in the opening, again, we find these words uh, from Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. You should have this memorized by now. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Let's start with gentleness. There's going to be three elements that we're going to draw out of this. One is, the final one is going to be obedience. So gentleness, respect, and obedience. As we have an apologetic that lives. A practical apologetic that lives. It starts with gentleness. And before we get into that, apologetics is worthless. You can do all that you want to do in the apologetic system and following your system and lay out all of the ideas and all of the evidence and all of the presuppositions and all of the arguments. And it will be worthless if you yourself does not show Christ. Apologetics is also worthless if we confess one thing in one setting and we practice something different in another setting. So if we do not show Christ and if we live inconsistent lives, apologetics efforts can be worthless. In fact, it could be more than worthless. It could be harmful to those that we are trying to reach for the sake of Christ. Let's start with gentleness. It's possible for us, again, as we Think of the wording of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 or 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Listen again to verses 5 and following, 5 and 6. It says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. There's this idea that if we just read it alone and we just left it there, there was this idea of a militant. I got to get it done. You got to be right you got to be held to a certain standard. And that is definitely true. But how we get there is not what we often think. We often think of these forceful, destructive words that we see here in these verses. Yet we also know that Paul is quite clear. As we read earlier in verses 3 and 4, let me read those again for us of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. 
For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are of the divine power to destroy strongholds. We recognize as we look into this passage that our battle is not to destroy flesh. Our battle is not seeking to destroy those that we're talking to. We're calling them to repentance. We're calling them to understand who Christ is, but our battle is not to destroy them. Our battle is not against the flesh and blood. Therefore, in agreement with Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, and this idea of gentleness, we must have a good understanding of our enemy and who the enemy is. In order to have practical apologetics, we have to recognize that the person that we are speaking to is not the enemy. The person that we refuse to speak to is not the enemy. James chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 remind us that we are not to show partiality. Therefore, we ought to be engaging all that we can engage on the street. Those that we want to engage with and those that we don't want to engage with. We ought to be those who are diligent in presenting the truth of the gospel to them. We ought to do so in such a way that when they see us live out Christianity, they see something genuine about you and I. We know this. We understand this. But it is important to be reminded of it often. We know that our battle is not against flesh and blood. We know that we need to be a, a well accustomed to what our weapons are and who our enemy is. We should have a good understanding of both. While we also identify with those that we are seeking to preserve. Again, listen, and Ravi Zacharias writes this in Beyond Opinion. He says, apologetics is all about seeing Apologetics is all about seeing, but seeing things God's way. Isn't that the lesson that Peter should have learned? Apologetics is all about seeing, but seeing things God's way. Back, Peter in the garden of Gethsemane, cutting off the ear of Malchus, should have learned that truth. Peter, in 1 Peter, had learned it. Apologetics is all about seeing, but seeing things God's way. I must realize that I can know all of the right answers. And I can deal a devastating blow to the arguments of the opposing person. But if I do it without any concern for the soul, I will be absolutely ineffective in accomplishing my objective. They have to see a difference in me. They have to see Christ in me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 Listen to these words, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Scripture says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And listen, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Our defense of the faith is that like those we are speaking with, we were once lost in sin. And it was the transforming work of Christ that has changed us. Not our own abilities, not our own talents, but the transforming work of Christ that changed us. How does that change our apologetic method? 
It makes it more practical. It makes it more practical. Now, we are able to take every thought captive because of the work that Christ has done in us and the continued ministry of the Spirit of God in us. It also requires that I live out what I speak, which is done again by the ministry of the Spirit in my life. We're going to speak more of that in a moment. That is gentleness. That is the awareness that I am like those who are still currently in that sin. But that was me formally. I was just like them, except that I was saved by the transforming work of Christ. May that be the testimony of our practical apologetics and gentleness. We continue on now in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Not only are we to be gentle, but we are to be those who have respect. Apologetics that takes every thought captive does not need to be condescending. Does not need to be condescending to those that we are seeking to reach. We don't speak down to them as if we are some lofty individuals. We can kind of see that here in 1 Corinthians 6 uh, that we just looked into. It also does not allow us, though, to hold the truth lightly. Uh, so not condescending and not tolerance by the world's definition today. This is a fine balance that highly views the value of others while, that we are talking to, while at the same time showing the illogical nature of their arguments. That's very difficult to do, as you know. In many apologetic situations, as you're defending the faith, it's hard to separate the person from the belief. But the faithful apologist will do so not only in testimony, but in their own life as well. And what is transformed here, making them practical evangelists as well as practical apologists. This is the exact attitude that we see in Paul in Acts chapter 17. And throughout the narrative, <clears throat> he is speaking truth <clears throat> while respecting other people. Paul has learned that the religious system of the people is this and that. He understands the Stoics. He understands the Epicureans. He understands what they believe. He's observed their temples. He has observed the temple to the unknown God, and he's going to use that as a basis point. He knows where he needs to start as he begins his apologetic defense of the faith as well as the evangelistic approach to reaching them for the sake of Christ. We recognize that Paul had not only learned the religious systems, but he'd also learned the cultural applications and implications. He had learned where to go, where in the city he should be to begin to have this discussion with these people. He does not tear them down, although... They are seeking to tear him down, if you remember from Acts chapter 17. But he still manages, despite all of that, he still manages to dismantle their beliefs. And a church, although very small, a few came to know Christ as Savior in Athens. David Nobel, in his book, The Battle for the Truth, writes this. He says, this wasn't mere doctrine for Paul. He practiced what he preached in Acts chapter 17, Paul confronted the vain and deceit philosoph deceitful philosophies of the atheistic Epicureans and the pantheistic Stoics. Those were the humanists of the day. The apostle countered their ideas with Christian ideas. He reasoned and preached, and he assented three 
Christian truths of the universe by God. First, the resurrection of Jesus, Acts chapter 17, verse 18. The creation of the universe by God in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. And the judgment to come, Acts chapter 17, verse 31. So, Paul demonstrates a tremendous amount of respect for those that he was speaking to. Finally, in order to be practical in our apologetic system, we also need to go where we started. We need to be obedient. We know this as pastors. You know this as Christians who have known Christ for a long time. It is essential for us to be obedient. But how does that manifest itself in apologetics? Well, apologetics that is not obedience is an easily, <clears throat> excuse me, an easily seen veil or facade that is quick to tear down. James chapter 1 is essential here. James chapter 1 verse 22 says this, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's interesting to me that James gives us an example of this as he gives a picture, a very vivid picture, to help us understand what is going on. He says that, uh, continuing on here in verse 23, he says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For when he looks at himself, he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. How often it is that, especially during COVID-19, you would look into the mirror and say, Ah, that's good. <laughs> I don't need to do anything today. No one's going to see me today. I don't have to shave. I don't have to comb my hair. Uh, women, I know this isn't you. Men, it's probably more you. <laughs> um, and it's probably rare, but it does happen. Aren't we thankful that we are called as Christians to not be that? We're supposed to wake up each morning as believers, in essence, what James, using James's illustration, and correct what needs corrected, to fix what needs fixed, to be hearers, who are seeing, reading the word of God, and doers who do it. That is why it is so valuable for us to engage in our daily devotions, for us to be deeply ingrained in the word of God so that we can be worked on. James teaches that the one who is a hearer only is one who is self-deceived. We teach our people, right, Pastor? We teach our people to be hearers who are also doers. We've need to also practice this ourselves. Apologetics allows us to address the world's challenges with a genuineness that the world craves. They're needing to be seen in you. We have to be hearers who are doers and compassionate thinkers. We must be those who in practical apologetics are willing to engage with the real issues not talking points. Talking points are just a basis for us to get into the real heart of the matter. Practical apologetics is as you are pouring into these individuals, they see an authenticity, a genuineness in you. That makes them say, I think I need to listen. Cornelius Van Til, in the defense of the faith, wrote this. He said, it is therefore imperative that the Christian apologist be, uh, the Christian apologist to be alert 
to the fact that the average person to whom he must present the Christian religion for acceptance is quite a different sort than he quite a different sort of being than he thinks that he is. A good doctor will not prescribe medicines according to the diagnosis that the patient has made himself. A patient may think that he needs nothing more than a bottle of medicine, while the doctor knows that an immediate operation is necessary. Christianity then must present itself as the light that makes the facts of human experience and above all the nature of man himself to appear for what they really are. Christianity is the source from which both life and light derive for all men. How important it is for us to speak the truth. How important it is for us to invest faithfully in not just proclaiming the right answers, but being the right people. Genuine apologetics or practical apologetics requires that we will always take every thought captive. It is illogical to think otherwise. We must be quick to obey the word of God as doing so coupled together with gentleness and respect will become the strongest evidence for our faith. Lost and dying world is wondering why the biblical reasons are the right reasons. Let us live it out in our lives. Let us use our own example. Let us not be ashamed of our example so that we can use our own example in the apologetic efforts to reach the lost for the sake of Christ. Thank you so much for participating with us today and following along with his last uh, nearly an hour. Uh, may the Lord use practical apologetics repeatedly, that you would come back to this fountain to drink from, to be encouraged to reach those who you may not have answers for. Let us be those who get outside of the walls of our buildings as COVID-19 has pushed us out in many ways and address the real issues of racial tensions, homosexuality, transgenderism. Address the real issues of injustice. Scripture has those reasons for us. Let us make those reasons not only found in the word of God, but lived out in and through you as a believer. And pastor, teach this to your people. They need to be reminded as well of practical apologetics, that they would be those who will go out and do the work. How many more non-professional apologists could be in the field working not because they have all of the right answers, but because they're living genuine Christian lives and they know the source of the answers. Teach them how to find the source. Apologetics is more necessary than ever, and at least in our modern era, and we see the need to actively invest into it. Therefore, take every thought captive. Be diligent to serve the Lord, to obey Him, so that you can live a consistent Christianity out as an apologetic method for reaching your neighbors for the sake of Christ. May the Lord bless you. I wish I could see you in person, but I'm looking forward to seeing you again next year at convention. And uh, may the Lord use you to be reaching your neighborhood for the sake of Christ. Until we meet again, may the Lord bless you and keep you.